Welcome to First Baptist Church of Terrytown, sharing God's love and hope around the world. Our prayer is that your life is transformed as you hear the Word of God preached today. So it's the holiday season, which is an incredibly stressful time of the year, right? It's Advent. Oh, wow, wonderful. We get to prepare our hearts. But no, it's also stressful because there's a million things going on. There's all these events and, and there's preparation to happen. And it's incredibly, utterly stressful. And what happens when people are stressed out? Do they get along better with people when they're stressed out? No, there's conflict because of stress. That's just what happens. And typically what happens when people get into conflict, you try to one-up each other, don't you? I know I do. I don't want to be dominated. I want to dominate the conversation. I want to be the smartest guy in the room. I want to have the best arguments. And if I don't have the best arguments, I want to get my way anyways. And these, these arguments, these conversations from the stress and from our lives and from the desire within us to dominate the other person, to be the top dog, to be the person who is heard, to be the smartest guy in the room, they happen in all of these personal relationships we have. They happen between spouses. They happen with significant others. They happen between parents and children. They happen between bosses and employers. They can happen, and they will happen in increasing measure as we go through the holiday season right now, which because Thanksgiving was so early is now extended. You're welcome. (laughs) I didn't have anything to do with it, but it's hard now. But as we've sat under the word for countless times together, you realize that as Christians, do you think God calls us to dominate each other when we have conflict? (sighs) No. In fact, he tells us to do the exact opposite. He says, don't try and dominate other people. Don't try to use your power to influence them or to to silence them or to quash them or to win the argument or to get what you want. No, instead, in your personal relationships, you should submit to each other. That's rough. Anybody like the word submit? What do you think of when you think of the word submit? You think of like a UFC fight, right? And the person submits because they don't want to get knocked out. Ah, boo, losers submit. And yet here the Holy Spirit, he tells us in his word through his servant, the Apostle Paul, that's exactly what I want my people to do. How is that? How does God want us to submit? What does that look like in our interpersonal lives? Because that doesn't really seem all that comfortable to me. How does God say we should submit in our personal relationships? So we start in verse 21, which if you are looking at it, it's like the middle of a sentence in most of your translations. Um, I have to take an aside here. I I, I don't like doing this. I really don't. (laughs) Our English Bibles are good. Our English translations are phenomenal. Your English Bible is the Word of God, and you can have confidence in it. I want to say that first, because whenever anyone goes to the Greek, I don't want to, like, steal the Word of God away from the congregation who doesn't know Koine Greek, okay? Um, your Bible translation is good. We can put our, our, our trust in the English translation that we have. I will say that uh, most modern English translations, however, in verse 21, they get it wrong. Uh, verse 21 is actually a sentence unto its own. If you look at the, uh, 
the UBS or the Nestle Aland uh, Greek Bibles, the New Testaments that we have, it's a new sentence. It's a new paragraph even. Uh, I don't know why modern translations. My guess is someone started it and everyone just continues to, to do this. But the Greek is very clear. It's a new sentence. It doesn't, it's not connected to the previous thought. It's a new sentence where Paul is saying, be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what he tells everyone. And that's how he introduces this whole next section of text. And I have to take a second to say that because otherwise we piecemeal and we pull this, this thing apart paragraph by paragraph and people say what the text never meant to say and they don't understand that what comes next is a, a, an argument or a, a train of thought, a theme that Paul has. And so in verse 21, he says, be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. How? How does he want us as Christians to submit to others out of reverence or out of fear of Christ? Because we believe in Christ, we should submit to each other. It's interesting here, the word submission is not obedience. Uh, it, it doesn't mean like, hey, submit to each other and do whatever terrible, awful thing they say to do, or just shut up and don't have your own opinion. That's not what Paul says. Sometimes that's how people will interpret what Paul is saying. That is not what he's saying. Submission is kind of what Paul talked about in Philippians when we saw that a few months ago. In Philippians 2, 3 through 5, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. I think this is what Paul is talking about when he's saying submit. Say to yourself, I'm going to put the wants, needs, and desires of another person ahead of my own. I am going to, in my mental headspace, say, you know what? They are made in God's image. They matter. And I don't need to be the person on top. I don't need to be the most important person. I don't need to lift myself up. Instead, I'm going to seek to lift others up. But how do we do this? How does he want it? us to do this in our relationships. Well, we come to verse 22, everyone's favorite, most awkward text to read, where Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, so first of all, this has been obviously an abused text because people say, ah, submission means obedience, right? Make me a sandwich, do the dishes, right? Like, oh, we know people like that, right? We know husbands like that. We do. They're like, submit, come on, you have to do it because I said so, right? That's absolutely not what Paul says. And I think Paul, he's making an argument for us to go, wait a minute, because he says, be submitting to each other. Okay, first relationship, wives, submit to your husbands. What do you mean? Wait a minute. How are we supposed to submit to each other? Well, by submitting. That doesn't make sense. I'm going to spoil Paul's argument here, but just for the sake of clarity, if you jump over to verse 33, he defines what he means by this. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself. I just spoiled the next point. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul introduced some tension, so they're like, do you mean obedience? No, he means respect. He means respect. He means even if, if, if the spouse, even if your husband, wives, doesn't deserve it, even if he makes bad decisions, even if you don't feel it, choose to show him 
respect. That's hard to do for some men. That's hard to do for some who are some men who are imperfect and some men who are near perfect. That's not true. There are none. Um, some men who think of themselves as near perfect. And he says, so, so if you reread that with the idea of respect, wives, respect your own husbands as to the Lord, which by the way, that is a revolutionary thing for him to be saying to a Greco-Roman society because typically women were seen as uh, subservient to all men and for him to come along and say, wives, submit only to your own husbands, that was revolutionary. You don't have to owe respect to that guy. You don't have to owe respect to that guy. You don't have to owe respect to that guy because you're a woman. No, just show respect to your husband. Whoa. Absolutely revolutionary for first century Greco-Roman culture. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body and him itself is the Savior. Do not interpret that as, oh, the husband saves the wife. No, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying Christ has saved the church. And so just as you have respect for Jesus, even when you don't like the decisions Jesus has made in your life, which we all have experienced that at some point, now as the church respects Christ, so also wives should respect in everything their husbands. I think that's what he's getting at. Think about it like this. Are all cars equal? No, 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 right? Like you can buy new cars off the line, right? And and, and in different uh, brands and everything. And they're not all equal. Some are better than others. Some are like right out of the chute. They're junk and you shouldn't get them. Uh, So they're not all equal. They're not all the same. And even the same model car is not all the same. Sometimes there was a production issue, right? Uh, and, and sometimes, right, if we, uh, if we look at our own lives, uh, you did not have the same quality of car. Maybe you got a lesser car. Maybe you just ran a car into the ground. I was talking to someone in the community here. She says, I'm the place where cars go to die. <laughs> wow. <laughs> she told me that. And then like three days later, she's like, guess what? I'm like, what? She's like, I told you. What was the last thing I said to you? You're the place where cars go to die. And she pulls out her phone. Yeah, I got into an accident, right? I'm like, oh, just horrible. She had a better attitude about it than me. So there, there are junker cars out there, right? And I'm not talking about a teenager who gets a junker car because they want to just run around and everything. I'm talking like sometimes you have to own a junker car to go through life to get you from point A to point B. Anyone ever own a junker car before? And that is your only form? Of, yeah. Yeah, we've, you know, many of us have done it. You have a junker car. Now, you have a junker car that's like also a prayer car that you have to pray every time you get in that it will get you to the place. How do you treat the junker car? Well, it's a piece of junk, so you know I'm going to run it into, into the curb, and you know I'm going to double park it, and I'm not going to do basic maintenance, and you know, I'm not going to change the oil, and if the overheating light comes on, I'll just put a black piece of, of electrical tape over it so I don't have to think about it. Is that how you treat it? No. Why not? Because you need the car. You need the car, so you treat it as best as you can. In the same way, not all husbands are the same. Ladies, I know, some of you feel, wives, that you have junker husbands. (laughs) Don't raise your hands. Don't raise your hands. (laughs) If you you get into the mindset, and this is what Paul's saying, if you get into the mindset of, wow, I don't have to respect him because he didn't do anything for me to respect. You think the husband's going to function better or worse? 
You think the car is going to function better or worse if you run it into the curb, if you run it into the tree, if you allow tickets to, to get on it and you just treat it like garbage, you never have... Ma- no! The car's not going to run worse. Or the car's not going to run better. It's going to run worse. It's not going to get better. Husbands are the same way. If you give respect, even if it's not deserved, you're going to go much further, even if you've got a junker husband. Then if you just say, well, I'm going to wait until he deserves it, he earns it. That's what Paul says. It's hard. But as you're going to see in all these relationships as they develop, what Paul says, how should we submit to each other? It turns into this thing. It's a mutual love and respect. Everything that we're going to see today is a mutual love and respect. Why? Because Paul doesn't just leave it at the wives and and close the book. And by the way, I've heard people preach just that text before, and oh my goodness, God help them. (laughs) I would never preach that text without at least... Going to the next section where he, he sets his sights on husbands. Because in verse 25, he moves the husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus died. He was tortured and died for the church. And Paul says to the husbands, you give yourself up for your wife. Yes, you can do dishes too. Right? Like, If Jesus can be tortured, you can give up your wants, needs, and desires for your wife. Verse 26, that Jesus might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, or without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul is telling husbands, husbands, give up yourself. Put aside your wants, needs, and desires, and love her. And I think he's specifically saying this to men because men, not all men, but men have this tendency when the wife is not doing what he wants her to do to think, well, I'm going to withhold love and affection, right? And, and, and it's like, oh, I, I don't love you right now. Urgh, I'm angry. And Paul's saying, get over yourself. Make the decision to love her anyway. Even if you don't feel it, even if you're not happy with her, choose to love her anyway. He also says this, there's a profound mystery, because he quotes Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery that's profound. Not the whole thing with a husband and wife, but that it refers to Christ and the church. There is a, a, no other way to put it, a spiritual union between Christ and his church. We are called the bride of Christ. We are God's physical manifestation here on earth while Christ is up in heaven and we await his return. And Paul says, chew on that. So I'll let you chew on that. We'll go back to husbands. Um, anyone, anyone ever um, know someone who is a diehard sports fan of any team? Like, like oh, hold on, hold on. I, I asked that wrong. A diehard sports fan of a bad team. Oh, a team that's consistently bad. Anyone know anyone like that? What team? What team? Wow, there's just, uh, okay, one at a time. Sh- throw up a hand. Who do you want to th- Who'd you throw under the bus? <laughs> the Jets. Who else? 
the Washington Redskins, the Yankees. Oh, fighting words right there. Shots fired. <laughs> Who else? The Mets, right? Yeah. Yep. And um, let's see, you know what? Back when I was in Michigan, the Lions. What do you do on Thanksgiving Day? Watch the Lions lose. Uh, I have Cubs fan, friends who are Cubs fans, right? Well, that's, that's, that's long. Now, those of you who are diehard fans, do you like quit your team when they're not doing well? No. No, like you complain about them and you get frustrated with them. But man, like you are diehard and everyone else is like, come on, like just, just convert, just convert. <laughs> Change it over to a team that's winning. How about you come over and be a Patriots fan? And everyone's like, oh, how dare you get behind me? Perform an exorcism. I'm sure there's a Patriots fan in here right now, but um, right, like no, 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 no. You're a diehard fan. You're a Yankee fan. You're a Yankee fan. You're a Yankee fan. Doesn't matter if they're good or bad. You might be happier or less happier than them, but you love that team no matter what. That's what Paul is saying for husbands. He's like, your wife driving you nuts? Your wife not doing what you want her to do? Love her anyways. Love her anyways. You can do that with a sports team. You can do it far more for an individual, the woman you married. Love her like you love that sports team that's not going anywhere anytime soon. Love her. Paul's other metaphor that he uses here, he says, love her like your own body. You don't hate your own body. That's your wife. Love her the same. How do we submit to each other? Mutual love and respect. Uh, but it's not just husbands and wife in a marriage. He moves it over to children. And in this context, he's talking about children who still live with their parents under, under some amount of their authority, under some amount of their help. In chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. So I know we sent the children over there, so maybe I should pause, go over, talk to them real quick, and then come back. Uh, but, but what Paul is particularly talking about here, he's talking about children who are living uh, you know, under the authority of their parents still. In our context, you know, up through like high school, uh, throughout the scriptures, we can kind of uh, identify what the great commandment, honor your father and mother, means in three different stages. When you're a child, it means obedience in the Lord. So if your parents are telling you to do things that are wrong or evil or bad or sinful or harmful, you don't, you don't have to do that. Um, but if they're telling you to do something that is in the Lord, you have to obey. It's obedience. Now, when you become an adult and you're no longer under their authority, it does not mean obedience. It means respect. Not perfect parents, but you still have to give them respect. And then, thirdly, when you are older and your parents are unable to take care of themselves any longer, what does it mean? It means you as their child take care of them in their so those are the three stages. The one Paul is focused on here is children still living with their parents. He says, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So God gave a promise to Israel. Paul says that promise is to us. And I think what he's saying there is imagine how a society was look if every child just was in constant rebellion against their parents. How long would that society and culture last? 
not long at all. How long would that kid's um, uh, uh, good future last? Not long at all. That kid is going to have a hard time. And so both for the individual and for the culture, when you have obedient children, things go better for the culture and it goes better for the individual. I tell my kids all the time, if I'm happy, you're happy. (laughs) And I also cite uh, psychological studies and surveys that have been done that show, that show, do you know who the happiest children are? Guess who the happiest children are? They're the ones who listen to their parents the most. You want to be happy? Of course I want to be happy. Then listen, listen. I'm not happy right now, dad. Yes, because you're not listening. For kids, I was thinking of a metaphor that would connect with kids. It's like this. It's like obeying your parents in the Lord. Not if they're telling you to do something, you know, harmful. But obeying your parents in the Lord. It's like playing a video game, right? There's rules in a video game. And if you choose to follow the rules, you have a possibility of succeeding. If you choose to not follow the rules, you're not going to have a great time. Fortnite, which apparently crashed the internet yesterday. Fortnite, right? You drop, I played it like twice with the kids. You, you drop in, and then you have to go deeper and deeper to the center. Otherwise, the whole world, you know, you get fried or something by an electrical storm. I don't know. I didn't understand it. They made fun of me the whole time. But if you choose, you're like, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to not go to the center. I'm going to go to the sides because I can do whatever I want. Guess what's going to happen real quick? Game over. Game over. Or... Minecraft, another big popular thing that Microsoft spent billions of dollars to acquire, which I can't understand why. And obviously, that's why I'm not a billionaire, because that thing is just taken off. But you're like, oh, wow. You know, in the game, there are these things called creepers. And uh, if you get too close to them, they start, like, making the sound, and then they explode, and then game over. But you might decide, well, wait a minute. I don't want to follow that rule. I think they're cute. Let me go and try and give them a hug. What happens when you try and go and give them a hug? Game over. That's the same image Paul is giving us here. Children, if you want to have the possibility of a good future, listen to your parents. Obey. They love you. They care for you. Just listen. That's how you submit. Just listen. That has the possibility for a greater future than if you don't. But it's not just children obey your parents. Like I said, everything we hear see here is about mutual love and respect. That's the image of submission. (laughs) I can remember a number of times being in like Sunday school growing up and they would quote this to us, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is where I'm like, yeah, I guess. All right. I guess I'll do that. And then, and then when I was a teenager, I started reading through the Bible for myself. And then I came across verse uh, uh, four of chapter six and they withheld verse four from me. (laughs) They never shared verse four with me, right? Wonder why that is. It says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. <laughs> yeah, what about that one? <laughs> fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, right? And I think this applies to parents in general. Uh, typically in Ephesus, the father would have been disciplinary, and that's why he says fathers. But mothers and fathers, pretty much nowadays, they both discipline their kids. And he's saying, whatever you discipline your kids in, don't make them angry. Don't go out of your way to make them angry. And I was always like, yeah, why would anyone ever do that? Do you know why? Because it's fun. And they've driven you insane. And you've worked and worked and worked and worked and worked for 12, 15 hours, and they've spent, you know, most of their existence that day enjoying life, and now they're whining at you about picking up something they dropped on the floor because it's taken away from more entertainment for them. 
Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. But why not? I'm angry. They should be angry too. It's hard. It's difficult. But he's saying, no, instead, whatever you're doing to try and discipline and correct the behavior, if they're, they're getting angry, try something else. A number of years ago in our home, our, our heater went out. And so we were getting a new uh, uh, furnace put in. And the guy who came out, HVAC guy, right, he's coming out and, and he's, he's about to work on it. I said, hey, did you turn off the breaker box? And he's like, yeah, I flipped the one that said, uh, that said furnace. And I was like, hey, I just moved in here. I have no clue whether that's actually the furnace or not. You probably tested it beforehand. And he's like, ah, it's okay. He's like, oh, I guess it wasn't off. So then he goes back over, doop, doop, doop. I don't know what he did. He flipped something else. He comes back, and he's about to do it again. And I'm like, do you have a tester? I have a tester. We can test to see if there's still a current there. And he's like, yeah, no, it's good. I, you know, flipped the other one that was right next to it. And I'm like, no, oh, my goodness. Whoa, stop, right? So I'm like, give me your cell phone. Let's do this here. Here is my tester, and we'll flip switches until the thing's off. That's what we do sometimes as parents. We're just like, let's just keep disciplining them the same way and, get, and expect different results. It doesn't work. When we get pets into our house, right? You get a dog and you're trying to train a dog. If you're doing something to train a dog and it makes the dog angry, all of us instinctually understand, I shouldn't do that anymore. This is a dangerous situation. And so we try something different. Just naturally do that. Nobody has to tell you, hey, don't do something to make the dog angry. You know that made the dog angry. Let's not do it again. Or worse yet, a cat. (sighs) That made him angry. Let's not try that one again. And yet with children, when we're working with kids, we have limited tools in our tool belt for some reason, and we're just like, whoa, they got really angry here. Well, let's try that again, and again, and again, and again. We get into this system where we try to dominate them. I'm the parent. You will listen to me. And over and over, and they get angry, and the whole thing escalates, and it's like, no. Paul's saying, no, 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 don't do that. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Change tactics. We understand to do this for animals. But for some reason, when it comes to children made in the image of God, we don't. It's hard. I fail this often. I fail it often. But he's saying, don't provoke them. Instead, change your tactics and discipline them in the instruction of the Lord. And look, church, I understand some of our kids are high flyers, and you blink at them the wrong way, you open up a package the wrong way, and they lose their ever-loving minds. I get it. I get it. In those cases, (laughs) de-escalate. Try and (laughs) de-escalate. Don't let them control you by making you angry. De-escalate. How are we supposed to submit to each other? Through mutual love and respect. Finally, he gets to a hard area. He's talking about bond servants and masters in the ancient world. I think the modern analogy is bosses and employees. But in verse 5, Paul says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, 
whether he is a bondservant or is free. So uh, back up a little bit. The translation they're using here to, to say bondservants, I think they're trying to help us understand what's going on, but, but they were slaves. They're slaves. Uh, slavery was different in Roman society than it was in America. Uh, there was some slaves that lived in absolutely awful, awful, horrible, torturous conditions. There were some slaves that had more power, authority, influence, and money than you and I can ever hope to have. Also, I was just reading, because I wanted to check my numbers. There are some scholars who suggest and think that anywhere between 80 and 90% of the people located near Rome were actually slaves. I thought that number was much lower. 80, like even 80% were enslaved in some way, shape, or form. It's incredible. Paul is not saying, hey, slavery is fine. Uh, if you uh, read this section carefully, if you read other sections where Paul and other New Testament writers talk about slavery versus uh, uh, masters, um, the Bible is clearly against slavery. It is not a good human institution. It is evil. However, Paul's first and primary purpose, God's first and primary purpose is not merely to socially set people free, but before he can socially set people free, he has to set them spiritually free from their own slavery to sin. He is concerned not just about this life, which is temporary, but eternal life, which is forever. And so his first primary purpose is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into people's lives. And history will show. Like people say, well, what caused the crumble of the Roman Empire? You know what caused the crumbling of the Roman Empire? Jesus did. Christianity swept it through and gutted the system inside out. The, 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 the sin that propped it up could not last under the gospel of Jesus Christ. It didn't happen all at once. Han Robinson used to say, if you go fast, you go alone. But if you go slow, time and time again, there's transformation that happens. And the gospel of Jesus Christ permeated corrupt, evil, wicked Roman Empire so much that it destroyed it from the inside out. The justice of God, once the gospel is rooted, cannot be stopped. So Paul, knowing all this, but he is dealing with people in their situations. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and sincere heart, as you would Christ. So he's not saying... He's not saying submit to abuse. What he's saying is, look, I know your situation is hard, and some of you have masters who are gentler than others, and some of you have horrible taskmaster uh, uh, masters. He's saying, but whatever work you do, guess what? Now, whatever you're doing will be counted as work for Christ. Do it as for Jesus, because he will see your work. And he gives a promise here. He will reward you. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. So whatever you do, do it for the Lord. I think the analogy for this, obviously, is bosses and employees. Um, and all bosses and all employees are not equal. But as Christians, when we are employees, we work for other individuals, other corporations, entities, bosses. He is saying we should work as if for the Lord and do good work. Uh, my wife is a teacher. My mom, who's here, we're going to celebrate her birthday after service, uh, is a teacher. And because, you know, so many individuals in my family are teachers, my aunt's a teacher, 
Uh, gosh, never mind. You guys don't need to hear my whole family. I got a lot of people around me who are teachers, right? And then, you know, friends and family members and just lots of teachers. And so uh, something I've, I've heard, who, teachers will complain about things. What do you think teachers complain about the most? You can't answer. What do they complain about the most? Who do they complain about the most? Who? Yeah, it's not the children. It's the administration. Oh, my goodness. Like, the ch- like there's like, oh, man, this kid, you know, he ate the paste, and then he threw it up all over the place, right? Like, yeah, you get that, right? That's normal. But, but they're kids, right? But my goodness, you hear the, the, the teachers, they complain about administration. Now, look, there are good administrators, and we praise them when they're good. But there are a lot of bad in- administrators. Those of you who are in the teaching business, you know that's the case right? And you're trying to educate the children, and you're trying to help them, and then your administrator comes along, and they're like, oh, you also have to do this thing, and oh, also you have to juggle these chainsaws while you're trying to teach these kids long division, and you're like, what is happening here, right? And so, so you'll hear uh, teachers, just ask a teacher, hey, you know, tell me about your administration if you want to be, you know, stuck in the same place for about an hour and a half. Uh, <laughs> administration can be incredibly, incredibly difficult, but Why do teachers do what they do? Is it for the money? No, because based on their level of education, it takes them 10 to 15 years to reach what they would make in any other profession. (laughs) So they're not in it for the money, obviously. Why do teachers teach if, if so many of them have difficult times with their administrators? Why do they get into it? Why do they continue to persist in it? It's the kids. They got into it because they wanted to serve the kids. And so there are wide swaths of teachers who have difficult administrators, and yet they choose to stay. Why? Because they are serving these kids. They're serving their needs. They're helping them. They're not just educating them, but they're showing them some kids who are are from very difficult homes. They're showing them a window of normalcy and care and compassion and love and respect. That's why they can stay. And I think that's what Paul's image is here for us. Whatever you find yourself in, whatever employment situation you are in, work as if unto the Lord. Get out of your mind, right? I've never heard a teacher go like, you know, I'm really doing this. It's hard. They don't pay me enough. There's long hours. I have to work on my own. I have to spend my own money in order to build my classroom. But I'm doing this for my principal. I'm doing this for the superintendent so he can inflate his numbers and he will look good before the state board. I've never heard a teacher say anything like that. No, they're doing it for the kids because they're going to change and influence their lives. And I think Paul has us have that same mentality of if you have a great employer, awesome. If you have a difficult employer, that's hard. Change your headspace, change your mind, and say, you know what? I'm going to do this for the Lord. And there is a promise. If you do this as a service for the Lord, he will see and he will reward you. If not in this life, then in the life to come. Mutual love and respect. But he doesn't just leave it with those who are in service to others. Verse 9, he closes it with this. He says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Paul is saying, you think you have power and influence and authority in God's eyes? You got nothing. 
You can't show him your degrees. You can't show him your, your 401k. You can't show him how smart you are. You can't show him how many people that you influence. You got, like, before God, you are nothing. So keep that in mind with how you treat people that you have authority over. I think that's what he says to us. Those of you who are here and you have some sort of power and authority in your jobs and your roles and your lives, he's saying use that power and authority to serve others, not to bolster yourself up. I like youth soccer. Youth soccer is a great thing. It teaches kids how to do teamwork. It teaches them how to lose. It teaches them how to win graciously, hopefully, right? They line up and they do the good game, good game, good game thing. That's fantastic. I love um, youth soccer. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, we've run into some bad coaches over the years, I've observed. Have you ever seen a bad youth soccer coach who thinks like, I am the coach? Therefore, I'm the most important person. And the coach gets in the kids' faces and yells and screams and belittles and demeans. What happens if a coach does that to kids? Are the parents like, yeah, all right, a kid probably deserved it. Is that how parents respond to a coach who demeans their kids on the field? No, what do the parents do? Get rid of them. They confront them. Or they take their kids out. And the coach has nothing to stand on because the coach can be like, I'm the most important person here. I'm the coach. No, you're not. Not to the parents. Who's the most important people to the parents? Is it the coach that they don't know and they just met this season? No. It's the kids. It's the kids. And the coach's job is to nurture and raise them up to help them improve in what they're doing. And if he steps out of line and thinks that he's the most important person and uses his power to, uh, to belittle other people because he has some sort of ego fantasy power trip, the parents will step in. That's what Paul is saying here. That us who have authority over others, maybe you're a boss, uh, maybe you're a manager, if you have authority over others, you are not to use that authority to belittle. You are not to use it to elevate yourself. You're not there to, 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 to have everyone make you feel better about yourself. No, you use that power to lift others up. You use that power to encourage others. You use that power to train, to nurture, to correct so that everyone can improve. And if you don't, Paul says, there is a God in heaven who knows, and you might think you're someone down here, but in God's eyes, you're not. So you'd better watch out. How does Paul say we should submit to each other? How does God want us to submit to each other in our personal relationships? He wants us to submit to each other in mutual love and respect. So much so that people will not be able to tell who's in charge, who's not, who has the power, who's the follower. I can't tell. That's the extent God wants us to show love and respect to each other in all of our personal relationships. A um, number of years ago when I was in high school, we had this English teacher, Miss Allison Abruzzi. She was great. She was our uh, English teacher. She was also very, very, very young. And she, uh, she did things a little differently. So instead of all of us sitting in rows and chairs, whenever we'd get into the classroom, she would have us make a big circle 
of chairs. And we would all sit, and she would be in the circle with us. And then we would discuss whatever the reading was or whatever the assignment was, and we'd have a conversation. And it was, it was great. It was my favorite class. And as we're, we're doing that one day, we're all just sitting in the circle, having a conversation. All of a sudden, this office person comes in, busts in the room, and looks around. And she's like, what are you guys doing? Why'd you move all the chairs? What's happening here? Where is your teacher? And then Ms. Abruzzi, who looked incredibly young, was like, I'm here. And, and she's like, what? And then she stood up and she's still like, what? Right? If the class was a normal classroom, right, and she, Ms. Abruzzi had stood in the front and everyone was there, she'd be like, oh, okay, that's the teacher. But in the context of a circle where the teacher is sitting with the students, this, this, this office person couldn't understand what was happening and thought the kids had gone wild and decided to make a circle like rebellious kids often do <laughs> and thought that we were up to no good with that wicked circle that we had made. I think that's what God wants us to look like in our personal relationships. When people bust in, they're like, wait, wait, who's in charge here? in your marriages. Well, who's in charge here? I, I saw this thing on Twitter where this husband said, I, you know, my wife asked me to not throw my wet towel on the bed anymore. And because of what Paul said in Ephesians, I now throw my wet towel on there and say, I will not change it, wife. You must submit to my wet towel. And Twitter did what Twitter does best and ate the guy alive. <laughs> That's not what Paul's talking about. Someone busts into the relationship and is like, wait a minute, who's in charge here? Mutual love and respect. Yes, there are roles. Yes, there is power. Yes, there is authority. But it's all about mutual love and respect. So if someone comes in, they're like, wait, I don't understand what's going on. Now, look, I know the reason, and probably a lot of you have been sweating here like I have, trying not to say this because the concern that all of us have, the concern I have is, wait, wait a minute, if I choose to submit to others, if I choose to show mutual love and respect, or it's only love and respect in one direction, and the person's not showing it this way, I might get abused. I might get dominated. I don't want to get dominated. I don't want to get mistreated. And so I think we read this, and we get scared, and we say, well, you know, that's a nice idea, but, uh, but I can't do it. I need to be feared. I need to be the smartest person in the room or demonstrate that I am. I, I, I need to be the one with all the power and I have to show you all my power. I've, I've got to dominate because I don't want to be dominated. I don't want to be dominated. I do not want to be one-upped. Paul is not telling us here to submit ourselves to abuse. He is not saying that we have to tolerate abuse. He is not saying that we have to tolerate mistreatment. He's not saying that if you have a terrible job with a terrible boss, you have to stay in that job no matter what. He's not. What he is saying is, as far as it depends on us, is that we need to show love and respect, even if it's not mutual. The ideal is mutual, but we need to show love and respect in those relationships. We need to lift others up. And you know what? The same thing happened to me just a few years ago. And, you know, I'm older now. I'm 41. I feel like, you know, I'm not a kid anymore. I don't look like a high schooler. But just three, year, three years ago, I was in a high school, in our local uh, public school, and I was part of a mentorship program. The school invited us to come and do a mentorship program during lunch for the kids uh, that were at risk. 
And so I'm, I'm sitting in a circle. I should have known. I should have known. It was year, you know, 20 years after the fact, but I was sitting in a circle, and I was just talking with these young people, and we were having these conversations about some deep things, and the person from the office poof, breaks open, and she's like, who's in charge here? And I'm like, really? Probably with a higher voice, really? I'm a man now. And I said, oh, I am. And they're like, oh. And I stood up, and they're like, oh, okay. Oh, oh, all right. I was like, yeah, this is the mentoring group. Oh, okay. I think that's the image God wants us to have in our relationships. Yes, there is, there is level of authority, right? Your parents are the authority people. But we show so much love and respect that the outsider looks in and says, who's in charge here? We're going into the holidays. I know it's hard. I know it's stressful. There will be those stressors that come that leads to conflict. Our first choice needs to be to show love and respect, even if we don't feel it. We submit to each other in our personal relationships by showing mutual love and respect. Choose in your life to lift others up first, not yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. It's a hard text that says a lot of hard things because I don't always feel like showing respect. I don't always feel like showing love. Sometimes I want to work and uh, be noticed for my hard efforts and, uh, and not just to be content to say, well, I've done this for the Lord, and, and Father, you know what I've done, and I'll trust that you'll make it right one day. Father, there are people that it's easy to show love and respect to, and there are people that it's hard, and the hard ones we can't do on our own. So I ask that God the Holy Spirit would come and fill us and enable us to show love and respect where love and respect is not earned and certainly not deserved. Help us become individuals that love others and show the compassion of Christ even in the midst of difficulty, even when we're stressed. Help us to become a church that shows mutual love and respect so that the world out there that needs the hope of the gospel can see that there is a God in heaven and they see it because we love each other, we respect each other, even in our disagreements, even in our differences. Father, as we are about to take the Lord's Supper together, I pray that you will prepare our hearts. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing we lack the power to show love and respect to our, our neighbors, let alone our enemies. But through Christ, we can, because he shed his blood on the cross and rose again so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And if Jesus died for our sins on that cross, if he suffered for the good of all of us, we can suffer a little bit to show love and respect to others. Prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With the elders coming up, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I would invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper together with us, where we remember that Jesus broke his body and shed his blood for the forgiveness of those who would believe. And use this as a time to reflect and say, God, is there a relationship in my life that I... I need to get right. I've been trying to dominate them, and that is not what God has called me to do. I am not called to dominate. I am called to show love and respect, even when it's not deserved. And then 
as we're preparing this, ask God for help to show love and respect to the person that you're trying to, to, to overcome, you're trying to one-up, or maybe they're trying to one-up you. And I don't want to show love and respect because then I'll be the weak one. Do you know who the weakest one was? Jesus, his broken body on the cross. There is no weaker symbol. There is no greater humiliation than Jesus dying naked, bleeding on a cross, broken. And he willingly put himself there for the good of humanity. Maybe God is calling you to walk in the footsteps of your master. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the church or make an online donation, please visit us at fbctarrytown.org.